Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Pod for another week. My name is Matt Walsh, Jared Barker is in the studio today. Filling in for Jake Michaels and Christian Jolly from Champion Data is here to help us take a look at a round one full of storylines and interesting little quirks. JB, good to have you back into the fold. Can we expect you as well to be a bottomless pit of hot takes like uh, our friend Mr. Michaels? Uh, no, there's only one Jake Michaels. I think we can all agree with that. I'll bring uh, the flavour that I normally bring to this podcast. We can let him do his thing. Uh, good top 50 he had, but uh, certainly a lot of hot takes in that top 50. It was contentious, uh, that's for sure. We haven't actually heard from Jake since he's been on leave no. the last couple of weeks. The last I actually heard of him was a little message on Slack that I got, which was, you won't believe who's in the, the Qantas business lounge here at Melbourne Airport. It wasn't Chad Warner, was it? No, no, he might have just got just about gone off the deep end. Uh, it was uh, Nathan Lyon on his way home from the Test Series Gaz. in India. So nice Gary, uh, nice little Gary spotting there. Uh, Christian, good to see you again. I've been very busy this week. We've tasked you because we've got a new segment coming up, basically. We haven't decided what we're going to call it. Uh, we're obviously very organised on this podcast, but uh, you've been hard at work for us uh, over the weekend. Yeah, just having a quick look at all 18 teams and uh, yeah, just trying to pick out a, a highlight stat that we can go through. So yeah, your club will be covered in this podcast. Excellent. Uh, plenty to talk about. Uh, I've got a new segment, as I said. Uh, we'll talk concussions, some turf issues, and uh, the big surprises from the weekend. But before we get into it, something from the weekend that took your fancy. JB, let's throw it over to you. Uh, something I noticed, all right. uh, I'm sure everyone else has seen this uh, on social media as well, but watching the Hawthorne and Essendon game uh, last quarter, there was a goal kicked and a young fella grabbed the ball and ran off like he just pulled off one of the best bank heists you'd ever see. So um, raises the question, should should people in the crowd be able to keep the footy when, when they catch one, a la how they do in the, in the baseball? Um, what I will bring up is um, I'm bringing a financial element to this because right. this might be the reason why you're not allowed to keep the footies. Last year there were five thousand and three goals kicked for the season. So let's say each of those balls went into the crowd. I've checked Sharon.com.au. The official retail price, uh, the official size, match day ball size five, hand stitched, two hundred and twenty dollars. <laughs> Ooh. Stiff. That Stiff. is one million one hundred thousand. $660 worth of footies. Does that include behinds? Um, that doesn't include Double behinds. So, <laughs> Two mil. Yeah. Two, Two mil. That might be why you're not allowed to keep the footies, guys. Well, could you almost write that off as like a marketing thing? You get to keep sure, the footies. I'm sure if I'm ordering 5,000 footballs, I'm not paying 220 for each of them. That's so. a good point. Oh, this is, I will, yeah. What I will bring up is that... The, uh, yeah. the AFL. What they're worth in the market right now, retail, is, is not what they pay and, to and, get them made. And so. you might know this one. How often do they use the balls for, an, for another game? I don't think they do. They're all fresh balls. So, yeah, last 10 minutes of the final quarter, any ball that goes over the fence can be kept. There you go. What about throw-ins? Gee, it adds an extra element to it, doesn't it? No out in the pools counted (laughs) this. This is just goals. So, uh, yeah. Like I said, could be a good marketing thing. You know, you spend two, two and a half million on on balls for the year and and maybe that's a nice way to get extra crowds through the door. I don't know. Uh, Maybe something for the AFL to think about or not. I don't know. Uh, Christian, you're uh, something that took your fancy from the week. Yeah, a little bit of a stolen one. Again, uh, I think Jared just brought up Twitter, and it's the same game, Hawthorne-Essendon. But uh, Essendon sitting pretty on top of the ladder. First time since, uh, for them, round 6, 2013, which wasn't obviously a great season for them. They finished, I think, sixth on the ladder, uh, but were kicked out of finals due to the supplement saga. But yeah, taking it one step further, saw a tweet that, uh, yeah, finish on top of the ladder, and you're a pretty good chance of making finals. Uh, 22 of the last 23 teams to be on top at the start of round two have made finals. 
uh, and 10 of those have made the grand final. So over to you, Essendon. You can't, can't be missing finals this year. Don's fans, up and about. That's uh, a surprising stat. That's that, And it, it, I looked at second, so finished second at the same week, and it's uh, 11 out of 23. Who's so more right of it. Uh, Port Adelaide. Oh, bad luck. Off the top of my head. <laughs> Uh, exactly. So it's less than a 50% chance previously of getting into the top eight. But Essendon, as I said, 22 out of 23. So, uh, yeah, Bombers fans, take that as you will. New year at the go. Dons, potentially finals, and uh, what, a almost 40% chance of making the grand final? And, and I think two two weeks removed from their coach saying, we're just going to have a crack this year. We know we're not going to be too competitive this year. We'll just have a crack, but it's all going to turn around. They'll be flag favourites by round five. Very Book good. your tickets now. Uh, Joel Sweet on Twitter. We uh, thank you for that one. Uh, something I noticed, I noticed a couple of things, a couple of little quirky ones. Uh, one of the great things about going to the footy, going, attending games at the MCG or Adelaide Oval or wherever you might be, is you know seeing the freshly painted 50 signs uh, on the ground. There's no more. They're just Telstra symbols. So the AFL has obviously struck a deal. I think last year one was the one was a symbol and one was the number fifty. But I'm pretty sure, and someone can correct me at Footy Tips on Twitter, um, that this is the first year that there are no fifty signs. So the numbers are no more, and we've just got uh, a few Telstra logos on the ground. I can't say I noticed that when I was watching. I watched every game and did not notice that once. So. And I think I've read previously it was just an arc. It didn't have a number on it. But for international mm. or for interstate viewers, they sort of just put the fifty because it was a good reference point. So yeah. I wonder in five years' time, are they going to go back and go, oh, well, we need another? Why? Why do they the do? Ground? Why did they have that anyway? What's the reference point? The number being there or the actual? The arc that you can the see. The arc, what people wanted, you know, when it was first brought in back in the early 80s or it's whatever TV, it was. It was wasn't it? Yeah, and it, but it was also like after being on TV for a year or two, people were questioning, well, how far is that arc? What does that arc mean? So they put a 50 put on a 50 it. 50 there. Yeah. I, I like the 50. So I mean, now you're just assuming that everyone knows it's 50. So so Coles has the centre circle. Mm. Telstra's got the 50 sewn up. I think Rebel is the goal square sponsor now. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's another sponsor on the wing, or both wings. Um, geez, yeah. we're getting a bit bit crowded on the old grass, aren't we? The ground signage as well. Don't forget, yeah, a lot of sponsors are in there. Uh, you can buy advertising space just about everywhere these days. Uh, the other one I saw, uh, Josh Rochelle, talented player for the Crows, uh, kicked a really good goal on the weekend and then pulled out a celebration that I'm normally used to seeing from uh, from one of his crosstown rivals in Xavier Dersmer. He pulled out the bow and arrow. Which I thought was interesting, a little strange. We might have to do some digging on what that means, if you do happen to know what it means. As I said, yeah. at Footy Tips on Twitter. We don't have too many uh, over-the-top celebrators in footy, don't we? Like mm. Tom, Tom Pakley. Yeah, probably the one yeah. that comes straight to mind. Charlie Cameron has a, has a few good ones. Yeah. Um, Other than that, though. Yeah. Actually, Jeremy Cameron's goal celebration last year with the, the can was pretty good in the grand final. That's not a regular thing, though. No. I wonder if he'll make it a regular thing. Who knows? <laughs> uh, all right, let's get cracking into the agenda. Uh, as we said off the top, Christian, we put him to, uh, to to the task this week of coming up with one telling stat from every match, uh, for every team from every match. Uh, so he's gone through all 18 clubs, looked at the stat that really stood out from the weekend's action. Uh, so we might as well start on Thursday night. Or do you want to go alphabetically? Uh, well, yeah, I've got it alphabetically. I didn't know if you want to go match by match or team team by team. Up to you. Why don't we go team by team? We'll... Uh, we'll, we'll Make sure that you're, you're all over this. But uh, Richmond, Carlton, draw on Thursday night. Um, we were saying off air before that with draws, it can sometimes seem like one team coughed up two points and another team was able, lucky to kind of get the two points. Did you get a feeling for that on Thursday night? It was... You could make a case for both teams feeling unlucky and both teams sort of feeling like the winners on the night. I was sort of saying first half, clearly Richmond uh, controlled most of the game, the territory, and just didn't take their chances. Second half, Carlton are in front, especially with, you know, five minutes or, you know, 30, 40 seconds to go, they're still in front. But yeah, had the, had the game in control at about 10 minutes to go, so you think they're the ones that are favoured to win. Uh, final siren goes, obviously no winner. Again, you know, everyone 
Jared obviously steps in. He's not a Carlton supporter for the first time. We've got a non-Carlton supporter. But, yeah, watching it at home, I was pretty flat, thinking that at halftime I was pretty buoyant, thinking, oh, you know, luckily we're still in this. But at halftime, I thought that was... Uh, sorry, at full-time, I thought that was one that Carlton probably let slip. Fair enough. Uh, one stat from the Tigers that really stood out. Yeah, so they were, um, you know, just the accuracy. So, again, expected scores, big stats. So they were negative 19.5 points uh, on the board that they put, So which was the worst result uh, of anyone for expected scores for the round. So basically you can sum it up by number one inside 50 team for the round, but 18th for accuracy. So, so just straight out just didn't take their chance. When you've got a player like Shea Bolton who's got a, a set shot from 20 metres out directly in front and he snaps it instead of kicking a drop punt, they deserve what they got, I think. Oh, big call. Um Carlton, on the other hand. Yeah, so there was... Last year, Carlton probably, yeah, was based around the stoppage game, really sort of winning clearances, winning contested possessions and getting the ball moving first. They were sort of behind in that stat on the night. So they were probably continuously sort of chasing Richmond, but um, they ended up as the second easiest team to go back 50 to forward 50 against uh, for the round. So Richmond moved the ball quite well end to end. But they only conceded three scores from defensive 50 chains, which was the equal second fewer. So... Probably, you know, three words, park the bus, Carlton, I think, on, on, on Thursday night in the end. They, they defended like their life depended on it, defended quite well. But, again, going back to their 2022 and what they need to improve on in their system, it, it the clearance and contested, possess, contested possession game didn't treat them well on Thursday night. So mm. you think that that game's probably a bit of an aberration for them, that they're not gonna, always going to be highly scoring off turnovers. Yeah, you, you mentioned the fact that they did score, score quite highly off turnovers, which is complete opposite of last year, as you say, when they were scoring a lot more from clearances. So if they can find a greater balance, maybe the, the scores go up for their for their matches. Uh, Cats and the Pies, uh, we've got a very happy Pies supporter over here, JB. Um, Flag Pies. Very happy with what you've seen. Uh, good game, good win. Didn't uh, expect it. Good but, opposition. Yeah. No. Uh, and the Cats... Very accurate as well, especially in those sort of first three three quarters. Uh, you feel like they were hanging around in that contest a little bit longer than they may have had accuracy kind of sort of reverted to the mean a little bit in that one as well. Yeah, so I think it was... Uh, I think the result didn't change. I think it was going to be much closer. But I think, yeah, Geelong kicked 20 points higher than uh, their expected uh, expected score. So, you know, Collingwood... Uh, sorry, Richmond were basically 20, 20 points below. Geelong were 20 points higher. But probably for Geelong, again, the, the Tom Stewart injury probably plays a big part of this they were scored like Collingwood scored for 29% of Geelong's turnovers which is one of Geelong's worst rate probably their third or fourth worst rate in the last couple of years so that was the main one for me they conceded 78 points from turnovers which is the most of any side for the round again you wouldn't expect that to be a common theme for Geelong of of leaking scores from turnovers all season long Mm. is that more a case of Geelong or Collingwood and again, I think it was a bit of both. Team. Collingwood are very good at scoring from turnover. We talked about them being a counter-attack team. But again, if you want to talk about Collingwood and, and things that they did differently, so they won the disposals, uncontested possessions, contested possessions, and clearance counts. Only the third time Craig McRae has actually coached the side that's won all of those stats. So we talked about Collingwood last year. All, you know, seconds of the ball, very good pressure side and very counter-attacking team. Uh, they were able to crack in first, win the contested possessions, but their counter-attack game by their 78 points from turnover shows that that was on, on song as well. So that, again, that was a big one for me is in, in terms of Collingwood actually got to dominate possession, uh, which they rarely have in the last couple of years. Um, and you saw, yeah, just how, how exciting their ball movement still is. So if they can win contested possessions, keep that ball movement up, I think... Uh, I know Jake's not here, but he's his big call, uh, yeah, could be going the opposite way. I think Collingwood are a very good chance to be, you know, 
uh, fighting for a top four spot if, the, if it keeps going this way. Rowan Connolly wrote uh, a great article for the website ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL, uh, basically saying that um, perhaps we've been looking at the wrong thing with the pies. We've all been looking mm. about how or why they would regress to the mean, as we've kind of mentioned on this podcast a little bit, uh, instead of looking at how they may have gotten better and how things may have changed. Uh, so the pies definitely one to watch um, coming up uh, in coming weeks, that's for sure. North Melbourne, huge win. First win for, for Clarko. Uh, at the at the ruse, and we were talking preseason about North Melbourne's performance in the preseason game against the Dogs, and how we really couldn't tell a lot from it, um, except for the fact that they got a lot of inside fifties despite having not much of the ball at all. What could we see from North's performance on the weekend that was a bit more of an indication of what we can expect long term in twenty twenty three? Yeah, well, again, whether it's a, an expectation, but it was one of the biggest things is they could not get their hands on the ball in the preseason all of last year. They were just It was very hard to sort of get a read on their game style. We know late in the season, we sort of identified on the podcast here that they were trying to use the corridor and be a bit riskier with their ball movement, which wasn't, wasn't helping them much. But the number one stat, I think, from the game was you know, plus 37 contested possessions, plus 15 clearances. It's their second best result in each of those stats since 2018. So they just... Again, whether it was uh, on the flip side, West Coast just didn't bring the challenge. But that's one thing that North Melbourne were actually able to do was dominate, have the ball in hand. Uh, and then, yeah, the ones that I've got is Harry Sheasel. Like, you know, third most metres gained on debut um, across that half-back line. He was obviously a big benefit of North getting in their hands to the ball first, working out into space that he was in. And then he, he, some of his ball use and kicks from the half-back line were just brilliant. So, yeah, again, uh, a huge tick in North Melbourne in terms of, yeah, they finally got their hands on the footy more than the opposition. On the flip side, the Eagles, pretty experienced squad that they took over to Melbourne, really disappointing in the end. Um, I think we were talking last week how we kind of expected a bit of a bounce back from the Eagles this year, given they've got some players who look fit and healthy coming into the season, but unfortunately they were just outplayed all day. Yeah, I thought, again, I sort of said that West Coast were... Um for me, probably, yeah, a chance to improve just based on they still got the crux of their list that got them to a, a premiership. Uh, I know it was, you know, four or five years ago now, but still some of those players are still, um, you know, early 30s or late like late 20s, so they're not over the hill and too old. But again, that, that one week, um, yeah, sort of showed that they're probably not at the same form they were before 2021. But yeah, looking at the age gap between... So Carlton and Richmond... Um, Richmond was about 1.7 years older than Carlton, so they were the, the biggest differential. But West Coast had the second biggest differential in age difference compared to their opposition. And obviously, neither of those teams won. So with, with 1.7 years uh, average age advantage, you usually win 72% a game. So on the flip side, if you're the younger team, you win 28% of the time. So uh, Carlton and North Melbourne both sort of overcame the odds of being the younger teams and, and getting the result. But yeah, that was a big one for West Coast. Was Obviously, they were smashed from the contested possessions, uh, which they always were. The age should have held them up, as I said, 72% chance of winning just based on the teams that selected. But also, they allowed North Melbourne to score from 55% of entry. So again, their bookends have always been pretty good. McGovern, Hearn have held up well. It's the third time in four years North have scored over 50% of their entries. So they just leak scores too easy. It's one of the worst losses of the weekend, West Coast. And I yeah. must say, oh, I thought they'd improve quite considerably this year. To and the it point is hard. Even- so now North are the number one, you know, one of the best teams at scoring per inside 50, one of yep. the best clearance teams, one of the best contested possession teams. How long will they yeah. actually last in those rankings? That's why it's alarming. Like guys like Shuey and, and Kelly, these are experienced midfielders who failed to beat up on a younger team. So, yeah, quite concerned with the Eagles. But just a quick one, yeah, Ruben Ginby, uh, 12 tackles. Uh, so that's the second most on debut. I think John Newcomb came out a couple of years ago and had 14. 
But it, it goes down to the two best tackling games from West Coast was Jai Cully last year had 11 on debut and Gimby's had 12 yeah. on debut. So the, the young kids usually come out and lead, lead the way in the pressure for them. Isn't that interesting? Uh, speaking of bad losses, uh, the Lions had a, had a shock out. Port, I, I, it was comprehensive. They were plus almost 150 in disposals. Um, smashed them in uncontested possession. So just, just beat them on the spread, beat them on the outside. Um, inside 50s, down 25, the Lions. I mean... I don't think I can remember a, a club that's been under. We talked about Ken Hinckley in the pressure power rankings preseason. Um, that was emphatic for Ken, uh, and, and we talked about someone else at the the lower at the well the lower or higher whatever you want to call it the the pointy end of the pressure power rankings being Chris Fagan, and it could not be a worse start for the Lions. Uh, what took you, you to what? Yeah, well, I mean, you've summed it up. They they were yeah the worst inside fifty differential of any team. I think they were eighteenth for points from uh, stoppage differential and conceded the second most scores from turnovers. So again, talk about the two main sources of turnovers and stoppages. They were getting beaten uh, in both and then and then the territory game as well. But it could have been worse. Their expected score for the round was fifty two. They scored seventy two, so they scored twenty points more than they were supposed to. They had seventy three percent shot at goal accuracy, which again. A pretty good results usually around the 55% mark so they couldn't miss but they just had they just didn't get enough opportunities well the power do well yeah well again there were the um yeah the ability just to beat them in both both score sources as i said across the turnovers and across the stoppages so i think they were top four for converting turnovers and clearances into it so it's not only just about getting a high number of clearances but it's about turning those into the score uh and it's something previously that port have always flip-flopped between they've been you know across seasons they've been either a good clearance side and then turned into a turnover side and turned into a back half side and a forward half side so it's something that they've always strived to keep that signature going for the whole year but as i said that the ability to sort of control both of the main two main score sources was probably the biggest tick for them and they get seven goals from marshall and dixon as well is that going to be it was a concern for brisbane last year their key defensive yeah, so they had they had four players kick at least three goals so <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah again they just a really really good spread and similar to north melbourne west coast game i think Port had that game on their terms and, and it just kept, you know, it just got out of hand by the end. So I think the numbers get boosted a little bit that that was a, a, a perfect game for them. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, line, yeah. the Lions have been able to mask a few of their defensive issues by the fact that they have traditionally been quite a high scoring team. Yeah. But when you're scoring 72 points and your expected score is about 52 and the other side's, you know, scoring comfortably into the hundreds, yeah. um, this is going to exacerbate the issue. So this is something to watch, I think, going forward because it doesn't seem like Brisbane have been able to fix many of the defensive issues that they had last year. Um, and it seems like, you know, early indications are smashed out of the midfield, forward line didn't fire. They kind of need those other parts of the game to be firing in order to be a competitive side. Yeah, exactly, and, and and that will be the big watch. Connor McKenna, obviously, a big bring brought in there. Yeah. They, and we just spoke about it at the top of the podcast. Oh, sorry, haven't spoken about it yet, but back half scoring is up. We were talking about it pre before the podcast. Uh, so it's slow from back half, all teams are getting better at it, and that is one part of the game where Brisbane weren't matching it with the other best sides last um, year. Speaking of comprehensive, the Ds were pretty comprehensive and I think have shown the competition that they're a, a genuine flag chance. I mean, we thought that pre-season, but to come out against another contender uh, and be so comprehensive, I thought was a was a, a massively good effort. And, and the Dogs just seem to really struggle every time they play the Ds as well. It just seems to be one of those bogey sides for... Just a modern hoodoo Bulldogs. for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, almost, and it's similar to the grand final. Bulldogs get their nose in front, get two goals in front, and that's when Melbourne sort of just put the foot down and say, nah, that's not happening here. So... <laughs> Uh, Melbourne, as I said, we again just spoke about it with Port. There's all different ways, different styles that teams sort of try to um, become good at. You can't sort of become good at every facet of the game, but Melbourne's game on the weekend was as close as you could. So 50 points from back 50 was 11 more than any other side. 
Uh, fourth for pressure of f- applied, top five for forward half intercept. So they were all able to lock the ball forward. But even if the Bulldogs did get the ball down the other end, Melbourne were able to score. As I said, it was 50 points from back 50, 78 points from the back half. So we just spoke about Brisbane scoring 72 for the game. Melbourne have scored 78 just from bringing the ball from back half. That's ridiculous. And does that have anything to do with the... Uh the tall forward mix that Bebo tried to experiment with? Yeah, I would have thought so. So again, with the Bulldogs, uh, so again, it's not just the forwards that are responsible for this, but they were 17th for pressure. Um, they were, so they just weren't chasing chasing Melbourne out. But again, looking at putting those tools in, you probably want them to be, you know, taking marks up forward and winning one-on-one contests. So they took seven marks inside 50 for the night. Only four players took a mark inside 50 for the Bulldogs. Uh, Norton, Hugo Hagen, Anthony Scott and McLean. So the other two tools didn't grab the marks. Mm. Uh, they were 15th overall for forward 50 marks, 16th for offensive one-on-one win percentage. So they weren't winning their one-on-ones and had the second worst kick rating. So you think, yeah, if you're going to have some tall timber, you want to be kicking well to them and then winning contests, but it just didn't happen for them on the night. Uh, again, just one little positive. Ed Richards finished with 16 intercept possessions. Um, was one of our top five rated players for the weekend. It's a new club record. For the Bulldogs, most intercept possessions, one in a game. There you go. Uh, the, Swan, the Swans were very good against the Suns, who, uh, speaking of bogey teams, had pulled off a few interesting and unexpected victories over Sydney in recent years. But it was all the Swans up at, uh, what is it now, Heritage Bank Stadium? That's it, yep. Uh, what did you notice from that game? Um, so Sydney finished round one, 13th for contested possession differential and 14th for clearance differential. So if anyone that wants to say that they bullied the Suns and were just you know completely over them all night, probably got it wrong they did allow a goal coast to get the ball first and then they were just the best pressure side and you know one of the best turnover teams so uh again a, a different sort of one we will know sydney will be a good contested possession team uh, probably a good clearance team they, they were you know eighth or seventh last year in it so that you know even though they made a grand final they weren't top two in those stats but it was it was almost like they just sat off the suns let the suns make the mistakes um but as i said yeah number one for pressure applied and number one for forward half intercept so they weren't cracking in directly at the ball carrier but they were just sort of waiting back and winning it off Gold, off Gold Coast way too easy. Chad Warner, mm. Jake's man, uh, strong start to the season. Ten Had a good game. coaches' votes, I believe, uh, but three behinds from his 30 disposals. But he has been given the votes, I believe, in uh, Jake's Brownlow predictor, which you can check out too. And uh, I would <laughs> just like to say that Errol Goulden was our second highest rated player for the round behind Max Gorn. This so, is going to be a good uh, little rivalry. Australian yeah. selectors, just uh, <laughs> keep that in mind. Uh, Jake and his love for Chad Warner, and uh, I think it's just us ganging up on Jake with our Errol Goulden <laughs> prediction. So we'll see how that one develops over the, uh, the course of the season with interest the Suns what was the uh, the takeaway that you had from uh, from Gold Coast yeah so them and the two Queensland teams sort of get wrapped up together here Gold Coast and Brisbane are the only two teams in the bottom 10 for both scoring per forward 50 and, and scoring against for the opposition scoring per forward inside 50 so again most of the most of the games on the weekend one of the teams was at least good either defensively or offensively um, you know, even West Coast, I think, were the eighth best at scoring from from a forward 50 entry. So even though I spoke about how bad their defence was, they were still top 10 at the other end of the field, whereas Brisbane and Gold Coast are... So Gold Coast was 15th for scoring per inside 50 and 10th for uh, conceding a score per inside 50. So again, you look at, as I said, their midfield did okay. One clearances, one contest possessions. It's a hard... The tough conditions up there, so it wasn't it wasn't pretty footy. But again, as I said, that neither their, their bookends sort of were up to the comp average for the round. You'd think that they'd expect to, or you'd expect for them to be a little bit cleaner in those conditions, though, the fact that they have to train in those conditions yeah, it's, as it's, well. It was Sydney that looked more crisp on the outside. Exactly. And I, again, but again, you know the conditions you're going to play with. I thought they did go very tall. Chole, Casbolt, King um, just didn't look like they were going to have too much impact. Obviously, Casbolt was the one they subbed out in the end. 
Uh, but it, it's just so hard to take strong overhead marks up there. It's, it's yeah. just so greasy, and you, you really got to play it off the ground. Um, so yeah, I thought yeah, I thought that they did go a bit top heavy, but that's just that's the team they want to select. We're going to talk about the worst losses for the week later, but I think one of the best wins for the weekend, probably the best win for me, was the Giants over the Crows, down twenty eight points at halftime. It's about thirty seven degrees uh, out at uh, Western Sydney. Um, 8,000 people in the crowd. Kudos to them for turning up because I can tell you now, if it was 37, I probably wouldn't be, me and my pale skin. Um, but the way that they came out in the second half was was inspirational. Toby mm. Green leading from the front, four goals. Probably all when his club really needed them as well. They weren't sort of towards the end when they were um, when they threatened to kick away a couple of times. But uh, the Giants were, were really exciting to watch. And we kind of flagged this in preseason that they would be the team to watch. Again, smashed the Crows in terms of handball. There was a lot of run, overlap run. Um, but they used kicking as well quite effectively to little in- incisive 45 kicks. I noticed a few of these where whoever it was would take the mark handball off to someone and they would be dashing forward. So we did notice or we did see uh, in practice what we thought we would see from the Giants in preseason and it was electrifying. Yeah, and that's probably the one stat that they first half they won disposals, contested possessions. I think inside 50s were about six in the way of Adelaide. So a little bit of territory gave for Adelaide. But the Giants sort of stuck to their guns. So first uh, first half, they were five out of 14 back 50 chains made it to the forward 50, which is 22%. Second half, they were up to uh, 36% of their uh, back 50 chains going forward 50. So the ball movement uh, started to work for them. But yeah, exactly what I've written down, sort of what you spoke about at the start. Probably pretty gutsy comeback in terms of the numbers at halftime sort of said they were in the game. But then they they had already made the earliest sub of any team for the round. I think Adam Kennedy played... Uh, sorry, uh, Harry Perryman, who was a sub off, played about four minutes. So that was the earliest sub. They had the fewest moves, interchange moves of any team. Um, made the fewest last quarter moves of any team, yet had a comeback win. So, uh, don't know if this is just an error with the AFL app, and you might be able to clarify this but in due time. But uh, tackles inside forward 50. Giants laid 18. Says Adelaide here laid none. Goes to show that if that is true... I did notice that as well, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure if that is true because, I mean, that's that would be a pretty strange stat. Uh, anyway, we'll move on for now. Oh, the, sorry, the Crows. Uh, obviously, they were in control at times in this game uh, and then just sort of were able to be overrun uh, towards the end. Can we put it down to heat, exhaustion, or just the fact that the Giants were riding this wave as we sort of expected? Yeah, as I said, there was, there was signs that the Giants were... You know, they, they weren't out of the game at halftime. Um, so, again, it, it was probably yeah, a bit of a fallacy at halftime that, at, that Adelaide were con- controlling the game. Um, but, yeah, I looked at them sort of similar to Richmond in terms of... We talked about Richmond. They had a lot of opportunities, most inside 50s and the worst accuracy. Adelaide sort of took their chances, but they didn't, if that makes sense. So they were number one for scoring per inside 50. So they scored, uh, once they were inside 50... Uh, 25 or 30% more than Richmond uh, were able to, but they had the third lowest accuracy of any side. So looked at them sort of where they took their shots from. They finished with three goals, two um, from within 30 metres and nine goals, 14 from outside 30. So yeah, they just weren't working the ball closer to goal. Rankin finished with two goals, five and one missed shot. Even Darcy Fogarty, if you look at his stat sheet, two goals straight, but he also had the two missed shots. So he was down at 50%. So uh, yeah, just, just getting a lot of shots at goal, but probably, yeah, a lot of sort of long flying shots from outside 30 or outside 40. They're going to yeah, improve this year, Adelaide. And I actually tipped them to finish above Port Adelaide. I don't like to make rash round one statements and overreact to, to one round of footy, but I still think they're going to beat a few good teams this year, Adelaide, especially since, um, as you say, they get so many opportunities and they've got so much potency in the front half, like Fogarty, Walker, 
Rankin and Rochelle, I think they can be as damaging as any four forwards for any forward line in the league. Yeah, so. and I've got Rankin and Rochelle as sort of the, the duo I'm sort of most looking forward to watching play together this year. They already they had 20 score involvements between them in the first week, but yeah, just looking at the tackles. So you're right, they did 18 to zip, forward 50 tackles, and one of the one of the notes I made is they did have the second fewest tackles Adelaide. So again. Spoke about Adelaide last year. They liked the congested game. They yeah. were a good high tackling team. Laird, um, Berry, these kind of guys. Like normally, these are their hallmarks. But Laird was very Laird uncharacteristically quietest games. Yeah, yeah. But again, I looked at Laird. I think he had 19 disposals. But he had 10 score involvement. So, which is one thing that I've been uh, down on in Laird is probably how much impact he has with his 30 touches. Um, but yeah, almost half of his half of his involvements led to a score on the weekend. So it was a yeah, not a high-quantity game, but, yeah, pretty good quality one for him. Uh, Hawks done by the Bombers. Don's first round one win for a while, and as you said, top of the ladder. So we'll see how that pans out. Can't play that, Hawthorne that every week. Top. You can't play Hawthorne every week. Uh, what was, uh, yeah, what was so the takeaway? Again, you're probably right. Can't play Hawthorne. That was the, it was the, uh, what is it, the fifth lowest pressure game uh, or lowest pressure match, so combining both pressure games uh, over the last five years. So there wasn't much pressure in there. Um but again, there was some signs where Essendon you sort of look at, and I've gone probably the other way. There's there's a few things that they didn't quite dominate that you expect winning teams to do. So they were 14th for forward half intercept. So again, they were allowing Hawthorne to move it out of the out of the back line and move uh, move it to the other end of the field. They were 10th for post clearance ground ball get. So again, they were getting beaten outside of the stoppages. Uh, but yeah, just be able to put it on the score. But but as I said, yeah, six, sixth most marks. Uh, in a game between the two teams and yeah, such a low pressure factor it's how much has this really prepared them for, for the long season ahead and you know while we're on Hawthorne I, I really worry about Hawthorne now so they've come off this game they're playing Sydney in round two the, n- the number one pressure side yep. got to come up against Sydney at home um, yeah I mean footy never goes the way you expect it but Hawthorne could be in for you know a world of pain this week if, if they sort of you know go from one game against Essendon and then try to sort of expect that against Sydney they sort of don't know what they're in for mm. uh, any other thoughts on the Hawks before we move on to the final game uh, again just Sam Mitchell and his ball move so they were the fifth best team for moving end to end um, so they were able to move the ball end to end but again they, they just didn't finish it off on the scoreboard so not actually getting the score on the board and sort of a, one of the stats that stinks we sort of say 32% <laughs> of their overall score from came from centre bounce clearances so almost a third of their score came from Either the quarter starting or someone else kicking a goal. You can't you can't yeah. base your scoring around just centre bounce clearances. So a uh, fair bit to work on. But again, Hawthorne, I feel like they're going to be one of the top five ball moving teams this year. So they're going to be good to watch just whether they can get the score on the scoreboard and and um, shut down the other team. Uh, big welcome back to Ross Lyon to the coaching fold. It was a very Ross Lyon performance from the Saints. A lot of very good application. A lot of um, attack on the footy and and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, they've They've won, what, 67-52 off the top of my head or something like that. So 10 goals to 7, classic. Yeah, very classic uh, classic Roscoe kind of um, kind of affair. What did you take away from the Saints uh, in particular? Because we probably didn't expect a lot from them this year, but there were some good signs and hallmarks that we could see uh, developing over the course of this season. Yeah, and it is it, is, it was all defence, and that's what Ross is best for. So, again, you look at scores per inside 50, they were 16th at their end, so the third worst team for scoring for a forward 50 entry, but actually won, but they were the best team at stopping uh, the opposition, which was Frio from scoring from their own inside 50s. Uh, they were actually 17th for pressure applied, so they weren't pressure at the ball carrier type defensive. I think it was more structure and, and sort of use the words with Carlton earlier, probably parked the bus a little bit behind the ball. Uh, ball in hand, they averaged the fewest metres gained per disposal. Um, and yeah, sort of top three for or 
number one, sorry, in the defensive 50 ground ball gets, but 15th in the forward 50 ground ball gets. So it was all, it was all behind the ball was where all their contests were won. Uh, but up forward, yeah, as I said, they're still probably bottom four, bottom five for some of the key stats in, in terms of in, inside their forward 50. They may improve as they get more firepower back into that forward line. Off the top of your head, did they stick to the boundary as much as they seemed to do in preseason? Yeah, so they were the number one boundary using team coming out of out of 50 for the weekend. So Ross. <laughs> and the Dockers, uh, for disappointing. That's uh, that's one way to put it. We expected a lot of Frio this year, but uh, seven goals. Um, pretty much the issues that we've highlighted with this side for a, a bit of time is the fact that they just can't seem to find the firepower up forward. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, didn't you know, they don't get a lot of inside 50s. I think they finished one of the few teams to finish with fewer than 50 inside 50s, but had the second worst accuracy. So only Richmond was worst and negative 19 points on the expected score. So exactly that. We talked about... They're not. They don't generate a lot of chances. They're playing fast, flowy footy, so they've really got to nail their chances in front of goal. And as I said, second worst accuracy didn't help. And then yeah, just obviously Nat Fife uh, had a nine disposal, seven marks, but inside fifty he was targeted three times, only retained it once. Sort of didn't didn't score from any of those targets. So yeah, the the, the big question mark remains on on what do you do with Nat Fife if you don't want it. You know, I think Longmuir basically said he wants to play him forward. He's, he's not part of the midfield structure anymore. But if he doesn't play well as a forward, do you? drop him or do you have to put him back in the mm. midfield well is that a question of the style that they play though and he's just not getting many looks anyway like Brennan Cox 20 marks Ryan 13 Young 13 Clark 11 marks and again I think they, a lot of that was slow. as I said with St Kilda they were just when Freo looked up there was you know they couldn't go forward so they had the short and uh, sideway option so again yeah Brennan Cox 20 marks as you said that's the most uh, uh, second most taken by a Fremantle player I think Luke McFarlane had 21 um 10 years ago or so but yeah again I think a lot of that was just they couldn't sort of go forward and, and, and that's probably one where you have to take the game on and trust your contest down the line which again when we looked at Freo last year they were very good at defensive contests so back half winning the ball but when they had the ball they sort of didn't win contests in, in their front half of the ground and that was probably why they probably you know a little bit tentative to, to try that you just got to kick long to contest against St Kilda and try to beat them down the line that they probably went short and sideways a bit too much probably not one of the round two matches that I would have said would be one of the must watch ones for the week but Fremantle hosting North Melbourne actually has a bit of intrigue for me all of a sudden if the Dockers go zero and two jeez watch out watch out uh, Christian you teased it off the top but you were very excited when you came into the ESPN offices today talking about uh, scores from back halves and how the fact that um Moving the ball from from the back half uh, into a score has gone up to become the second highest since 2000? 2010. So there's, 2010. if you really look through the numbers and you look at sort of, you know, we looked at every year from 2012 onwards, but if you look at 2000, 2005 and 2010, the numbers are pretty similar between 2000 and 2010. They're, they're very high, especially. So if you look at uh, going from back 50 to forward 50, I think it was about 35 to 37% of back half, back 50 chains ended up in the team's forward 50. So one in three. And then coaches started good getting a bit defensive. Yeah, You're talking about flooding the back line in those sort of mid-2000s. Yeah, and... so 2020, we hit an all-time low of 17.7% of defensive 50 chains made it to the forward 50. So half, half as good as it was, um, you know, 15 years earlier. On the weekend, we're back up to 26.1% of uh, back 50 chains making to the 450, which is the highest percentage since uh, 2011. Uh, again, so that's a, you know, I've looked at comparing it to the rest of the season. So you've got to take out round one in isolation. And, you know, you asked the question, Matt, are round one games always a bit higher, that the, the venues are uh, obviously in better conditions. Um, so the weather's better conditions, drier footy and things like that. But, uh, 
Last year, we were only at 20.1% from going back 50 to forward 50 at round one, and we finished at 20.9. So we actually actually finished the season slightly higher than we started. Yep. But go back to 2021, and it was 26.7%. So it's 0.6% higher than this year in round one. And it ended up dropping back down to 21.1. So a bit of a watch. But as I said, uh, and the other one is 37 points were scored per game uh, or per team per game from back 50, uh, which is the, is the most since 2010 as well. So not only is the ball moving quite well, but you're also being able to, teams are generating, you know, mm. six goals per game from a back 50. Bit of a follow the leader when you look at some of the more successful clubs from last year. We talked about Collingwood doing this a little bit. Yep. And, you know, as we said, uh, Collingwood, Richmond, probably... Not so much Collingwood. There were a bit of a mix, but Richmond would take ground by hand. Yes. Uh, a lot of handball, a lot of handball. Some of the teams, I think, I think Hawthorne are one. They're probably doing it with a lot more kicking uh, style. And again, you know, we know Hawthorne probably won't be in the finals this year. But again, their style is. You talk about Sam Mitchell. He's playing a style for the future. He thinks that's where the game's going. Um, so it is. It's it's move the ball forward, but whether you use hand, foot, slow marks, or long kicks down the line, I don't think it matters as long as you've got the right methodology to not yep. turn it over in between those two fifties. Yep. And there are, there are some clubs that do that sort of methodical kick mark really well, uh, and that obviously works for them. Uh, to some more serious stuff, Jazzy, we were talking in the office uh, all of yesterday and today just about concussion, about some of the big hits that we saw on the weekend. Cosy Pickett, uh, given the two weeks by the MRO for his, uh, I don't even know what you, you'd call it, his barrel into... Cannonball. Yeah, the cannonball, the torpedo uh, into Bailey Smith. Um, Shane McAdam against the Giants uh, into Jacob Ware. uh, A bit of a front-on contact. um, And and Ware had to be taken off uh, to get uh, get the HIA done, so to see if he had concussion. Uh, Buddy was given a week for his hit on Sam Collins. A bit of a precarious subject, especially given the context of the last week that we've had in footy. Uh, and how there's now going to be legal action launched against the AFL by ex-players, and how they're kind of saying the AFL didn't do enough to protect against concussion. And then you have these incidents, you know, days after one another, mm. in which players are, I would argue, recklessly going into contests, in some cases in terms of the, the Kaiser Pickett one, after the contest, uh, and, and having a potential to cause pretty serious injury. And I think this is a really important week um, for the AFL to kind of understand where the future needs to go and how we judge these uh, these incidents because two weeks for Cosy Pickett seems a little bit light after what we've learned in the last week. It doesn't seem light. It is light. And I can't believe we're still having this conversation about the inconsistency of the MRO and the sanctions that are handed down to players that are savagely attacking opposition players head high and potentially causing concussions or worse. So I look at the Cozzy Pickett incident and I see him launching himself into the air, into the head region of Bailey Smith. And the only reason why he got two weeks is because they've elevated it from low impact. Because Smith got up from the contest And he played right the away. rest of the game yep. to high impact, two weeks. Because of the I like the fact that injury. they did that. Yes. So um, when you look at the AFL's table of offences... Um, they're allowed to use potential to cause injury to elevate uh, the level of impact. But they don't do that for the conduct, which is either intentional or careless. And these were graded as careless because careless they're football acts. acts. They're not football acts. Well, in terms of what we're used to and the, and the, the prior uh, incidents that we use as context, they are deemed to be, technically, it's a bump, a football act. Which is what I'm saying. If Cosy Pickett's feet are leaving the ground 
it becomes intentional because you know exactly what you're doing. It was a late hit. Bailey Smith, like, Cozzy is lucky that Bailey Smith played the rest of the game because if he was concussed... Well, he'd be sent straight to the tribunal. Absolutely. We have colleagues in Sydney uh, who cover rugby league and rugby quite extensively, and they were shocked and appalled that it wasn't given at least six weeks Mm. at a minimum. You know, they were calling for two months. You know, and this is this is coming from from reporters and journalists uh, of codes that we probably down south, in particular in Melbourne, or you know, across the football states, probably think is a is a is a more like in terms of the actual clashes that happen within games. I'd say that, that rugby and rugby league they they are cannoning into each other a lot more. Mm. So to kind of hear that from the guys up in Sydney, kind of shocked me. And and again, like I said off the top, throw in the context of the fact that we are having these discussions where Gary Ablett's saying that he's had concussion issues throughout his years, senior. You know, Max Rook is leading a, a class action lawsuit. There's AFLW players. You know, this this league's barely seven years old, and and they're coming out and saying and and starting to talk about legal action against the AFL. Firstly, it's very strange that these players made these decisions. I know that you know it's footy and and things happen quickly, but. Surely the clubs in the AFL are telling these players, you can't be doing stuff like this That's anymore. why it's head-scratching. It's the timing of it all is actually ridiculous. And but I, again, I look at the Shane McAdam one, and I'm happy for him to get... I don't think he should have been referred to the tribunal, especially when we're comparing it with the Cozzy Pickett one. Cozzy Pickett's worse. I hate after-disposal hits. That They're the ones that I can't stand. And you're right, Cozzy Pickett left the ground. Don't think McAdam left the ground. Jacob Ware's in possession of the ball. I still feel like what McAdam tried to do is a footy act. You're allowed to bump blokes. You're allowed to take them. You're allowed to bump them in the chest and knock the wind out of them. He just got him high. That's when you... And I'm happy. Players have to pay the price if you do, do to get high. But I don't think we can look at Shane McAdam and what he did. Yeah, he might have been able to make a better choice and tackle the guy. But I don't think he did anything illegal in terms of the act that he's doing. I think Pickett leaving the ground and hitting someone that's already disposed of the ball, that's illegal. Uh, but yeah, looking at the the McAdam one, you know, it's it's been referred straight to the tribunal because he hit him flush. Darcy Byrne Jones tried to line up Will Ashcroft the exact same way, missed him. Will Ashcroft kicked a goal, and everyone just jumped on how good Will Ashcroft's bit of play there was. And Darcy Byrne Jones, you know, should have, could have put a tackle on, but and it, it was all about how tough Will Ashcroft was. So it, it's funny that the two acts, you know, Darcy Byrne Jones isn't going to get cited or go, go, get called dirty for trying to do what he did. Um, whereas McAdam, because he made contact with him, it seems like a dirty act. And I've heard people, you know, describe it as oh, he ran past the ball to clean up a young Giants player. The age of the player shouldn't matter. And two, he was in possession of the ball. So I think stepping back and looking at that one, as I'm saying, he should get rubbed out two weeks, whatever. But we can't look at that action and say we're trying to rub out that action. You can still hit people as long as you hit them legally. I'm all, I'm all for defending football actions because bumps and contests happen. It's a con, it's a contact sport. It's a pretty kamikaze sport. Players coming at you left, right and centre. So injuries are just going to happen. Concussions will happen. You can't eradicate it fully. We never will. You, you can't do that. Um, accidents are, yeah. accidents are going to happen. But the issue with the McAdam one is that was graded as severe impact. It went from medium to severe with the potential to cause injury. Well, and because Ware had to go off and get his HIA done, which is what the which is what my issue is, which is why I stand on the side of yes, you have to punish the action rather than the outcome. Yeah, but the action has to occur. I think the difference with the Burn Jones thing is he's lucky that he missed him. Yeah, you know, and, and as soon as that clip happens or, or or contact is made, he's in a lot of strife. Mm. But we should be trying to eliminate these acts, and the way that you eliminate stuff like that is. You, you you punish these. The properly. AFL had a chance to set a precedent in 2023 with this Cosy Pickett bump, and don't, they didn't don't do it. Don't talk about precedent anymore. 
don't don't look at 2021 don't look at 2022 say the new precedent is this we are currently in a war against concussion mm. you know we need to take this extremely seriously pick it left the ground after the ball had been disposed hit high could have caused a lot of injury i'm sorry that's six weeks you'll find that players stop doing that mcadam i see your point christian however i think that if there is the option to tackle he should have tackled you can't. I don't think you can be barreling into players like like that and not expect to get maybe two weeks. And and as you said, you you expect that as well. But I just think that these are the kind of actions where we can avoid these, and the game is not going to be any worse off for it. For for as long as we continue to punish the outcome, outcome. over the action, the yep. AFL is waiting for a tragic incident to Correct. occur on field before they say, "Oh, hang on, you know what? Yeah, we should punish them harsher." I agree. They've failed miserably again, and yeah. I'm not even shocked. And the fact that it's round one, I just feel like they could have said, you know, with all the, the news and all the, the research and all the science coming to light about CTE concussions and, and, and how these all interact with, with footballers over the course of many years, we're wiping the slate clean on precedence. Mm. It's not hard to do. You just say, it. we're doing it. Um, uh, look, obviously a complicated issue, complicated week. Um, Pickett probably, as you say, we're very, very lucky. He needs to, get to buy two a lotto weeks. ticket. <laughs> he needs to buy a lotto ticket. It's no wonder Melbourne accepted the two-week ban straight away because they know they got off lightly. And can I just say I'm not attacking Cosie Pickett because I love him as a player. He was and arguably he one of the best on ground. One as well. of my favourite players to watch, and he will be for the next decade. But I think he made a very big blue uh, on the weekend, and I think he knows it. Fair enough. Uh, Red Time, sponsored by Subway, getting towards Red Time of this podcast. Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? Jazzy, welcome back to the fold. The AFL should put its foot down with the MCC about having concerts so close to footy season. Uh, justified. I feel like I'm about to speak about the tribunal again because of the <laughs> potential to cause injury. Um, yeah, we see a couple of players like Tom Stewart um, obviously has succumbed to a knee injury. Sam Doherty came out and said he was a little bit concerned by it. Paddy Dangerfield said you can tell the difference between the, the lining of, of the grass or sort of different patches. Um, but then there's a play like Angus Brayshaw, I think he said he didn't really notice it mm. at all. Um, and I'm not a, a turf expert here, and I think the MCG curators do, do a wonderful job. Agreed. Let me preface that uh, by saying that. Before we get attacked on Twitter. But, yeah, I think, look, they didn't really have a choice when Ed Sheeran's selling 100,000 tickets. The, the only place that can hold that concert is the MCG, so I understand mm. that side of it, but... Yeah, I don't know. I'm wondering how long does it take for the grass to be relayed and then actually mix into the soil and, I guess, gel together to be a, an appropriate surface to then be played on by footy players? Because we're lucky that Tom Stewart didn't do an ACL instead, and this would be an even bigger talking point. It would be. And speaking of ACLs, I think I would give, as um, if I was the AFL, for instance, I'd be giving a lot more weight to someone like Sam Doherty, who has done two knees, and the fact that he was you know, a little bit edgy about going out onto the turf. Mm. Uh, it, it is a bit of an issue, and, and you're right. Obviously, the stadiums want to maximise their revenue as well. Um, Ed Sheeran obviously probably has a, a, a watertight schedule in terms of what he can do. And if, oh, the commercial element is real. It's yeah. very real. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm sure the MCC, curators, the MCC and the MCG curators would have come together and, and sort of said, you know, hey... We will have nine days between this and event. They're and professional, so you one. trust. Can you get you it done? Yeah. I would have said yes, um, but obviously, clearly, it's not perfect. Mm. So um, I don't know. Are we putting our foot down? Would, would I? Would you? No, no events for from two weeks out, three weeks out. 
stuff it yeah put your foot down <laughs> very good uh you got one for me i do have one for you Fremantle's loss on the weekend was the worst one from round one there are a lot of bad ones and we've just been through you, you talk about the lions mm. um crows with, with with five goals up um possibly should have won but i think frio i mean w- w- it was tough because ron Connolly wrote an article for us last week talking about the seven teams that can win the flag Fremantle were left off that um that that post got sort of linked through to a different a couple of different social websites, and there were a lot of Frio fans who were a bit upset by this, saying, "You know, we won won a final last year. We're on the up. We're on the improve." But as we've discussed in the podcast, the same issues kind of remain, and that's just finishing off kicking goals. Frio is still a good team. Yes, but that could be the problem. The word you used was improve. Yes, have and they improved? Have they improved? Mm. And and did they improve over the off season? I don't know. Is Luke Jackson going to be the guy that? comes in right away and proves to be the difference for them up forward and in the ruck? I don't know. Um, so I, I just wonder whether they've improved this year and whether... What's the ceiling for this group? What is the ceiling for this group? Because if they were to keep improving you know, year on year, as the fans would have expected and as I'm sure Longmuir would have expected, that's that's a two-win in final season. That's a prelim. Mm. Are they a prelim side? I don't know. I don't think they are. But that was a terrible start. On the road against one of the side, a side that had eight or nine of its best twenty-two out, um, you know, fresh coach, fresh ideas, probably still trying to gel. I, I just think that was a really bad win. So I think with Frio, really again, bad loss rather. Longmuir has been been there for a while now, and for three or four years they've been constant at what they do well. So he brought in defence straight away, and they've been good at that for three or four years. So it is, it's been about tinkering with their uh, ball movement and their offence, and they just haven't quite nailed it. So that's why I'm pretty confident that Frio won't drop off. I think they should still be in finals or thereabouts again because that system has held them up for four years. You know what Longmuir's signature is, but it is. Can they beat the better teams? Because it's always just you've got to get the score on the scoreboard now. Yeah, can they kick a winning score? That's they the need big, to start scoring. That's the big question for me. Uh, very good. Uh, don't forget Ron Connolly on the Footyology podcast. That drops every Wednesday now as part of ESPN. He's uh, chatting with Rodney E doing previews of all the games every week. Uh, don't forget, get your footy tips in. Uh, it was good because if you, if you forgot your tips on Thursday night, you would have been given the tip for the draw and you had another go on Friday to get your tips in before uh, things got pretty serious. But if you're only one week behind, uh, don't stress. Check out the Footy Tips app and get your tips in. We're at Footy Tips on Twitter if you want to have uh, a chat with us, questions, comments and feedback, of course. Uh, Jazzy, good to speak with you. You'll be in next week. Likewise, mate. Yeah, uh, I think I will be. Is Jake still in Japan? I haven't heard from him. As I said, the last <laughs> I heard from him was he saw Nathan Lyon in the, the Melbourne International Business Lounge. Uh, so who knows? Get we'll some see. spinning tips off him. Absolutely. Uh, Christian, good to speak with you as always. To everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.